0: Well, your Bible has had a rest on Sunday mornings from being in the book of Acts. But we are back in Acts today. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 21, our Scripture reading this morning will begin in verse 15 and proceed down through verse 26. This is the Word of the Lord. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan, of Cyprus. An early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God "...had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him..." Kind of an abrupt transition here. "...you, see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses." telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in the observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles we have believed, who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men... And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Wow. We would read a passage like that and we would think to ourselves, well, expositionally nothing kind of jumps off the page to us and we would think, man, maybe just kind of a boring read, but not so fast, my friend. Right? There's so much there for us to think about. Uh, primarily, I want you to think about the fact that we live in a world of rank individualism. It's pretty much all about us right, and our rights and how we feel. We never want to be inconvenienced in any way at all. And that problem is not only a societal problem. I want to remind you that it's a church problem. But this passage gives us an example of fallible Christians. You know who's on that list? You are. Right? We're all sinners. And we are fallible Christians. If you're saved, you're a Christian. And if you're saved and a Christian, you're still fallible. Right? You're a sinner. And this is an example of fallible Christians trying to express Christian love in the community of faith and to preserve unity And at the same time, advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not what the church ought to be doing? Uh, By all means, thinking of others higher than ourselves, showing Christian love, loving the brethren, and then preserving the unity, and all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the text. It says, When they traveled to Jerusalem, no matter where you were, If you went to Jerusalem, normally in the text, it would refer to the fact that they went up to Jerusalem. didn't matter if you were coming down from the north or east or west. It was referred to as coming up to Jerusalem, the holy city. And I think there's something about this little detail in verse 16 when they stop over at Manasseh's home. The Bible says that this guy was an early disciple. What would that have meant? It would mean that more than likely he was with the Lord Jesus even when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. This is amazing, right? What do you know about Luke? Luke is a physician and a historian. So don't you think that Luke would have pulled out his laptop right, and sat in Manasseh's home and got as much detail as he possibly could get concerning The oral teaching of Christ and what uh, it was like to listen to Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means what Luke wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He was led in such a way to write exactly what God intended him to write. But Luke was a historian. To me, this is phenomenal. He is able to take a ton of notes as he lodges in this home. And thus you're able to hold a copy of the book of Acts based upon all that went on, not only in the past. uh, Of course, Luke not only wrote Acts, but he wrote Luke and Acts. Volume 1 is Luke. Volume 2 is Acts. And this is probably where Luke got a lot of his firsthand information and eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, they arrive in Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the brothers. This marks the end of Paul's which missionary journey? Third. That's right. This marks the end of Paul's missionary journey. And you know, Acts has chronicled missionary journey 1, 2, and 3. And so, that, this is marking the conclusion of it. There are some symbolic uh, representations between Paul and Jesus. Do y'all know that? Jesus went up to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission and was crucified outside the city. Here is the Apostle Paul, knowing full well, being constrained by the Holy Spirit. Acts 20, The Holy Spirit was leading Paul up to Jerusalem. And Paul is going to eventually die in Jerusalem. So there are a lot of contrast between the life of Christ and Paul. But talk about a shifting of gears. There's a quick shift between rejoicing in salvation to this statement of the Apostle Paul's teaching and how the zealots... Those who are zealous for the law are responding to what the Apostle Paul is teaching. So he's warmly received in Jerusalem. But uh, don't forget that Paul's there on a mission, is he not? Uh, You don't have this in the text. But one of the first reasons why Paul goes up was to to deliver a benevolent offering to the poor Christians in the church of Jerusalem. So this was a unifying goal of Paul. To give this offering to unify the church. Remember, Jerusalem's the mother church. It's been the hub of where evangelism would reach the nations for Christ. Right out of Jerusalem. So, you don't have this recorded for you, but he brings this benevolent offering to the poor saints. That's recorded in 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Romans. All record this particular relief offering that he brings. Second, Paul is there to report to the pillar church. Here's a missionary coming home from the church from which he was sent. And Paul is back there. And again, it is the most important point for Christianity at this particular time. It's the mother church. And it is the birth of all pillar churches. Sure, Antioch sent out way more missionaries. But there would have been no Antioch apart from the Christians leaving Jerusalem. Okay? So it's the pillar church. And finally, Paul is there because God has destined... For him to be there. Right? Acts 20, 22. Paul reminds us that he was constrained by the Holy Spirit of God to make it to Jerusalem. And his friends, just like Jesus' friends, told him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul's friends would say, don't go up there. Remember that sermon? Uh, how many times they said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And, uh, of course, friends should do that if they're trying to protect people. But Paul knew full well that it was the will of God... That he go up to Jerusalem. Do you think Paul loved to talk about the victories of the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Gentiles? I mean, that's kind of like talking to a preacher about somebody getting saved in their church. Right? And this is what happens when Paul returns. They're rejoicing at the salvations among the Gentiles, what the gospel is doing. Now, I don't know if you grew up in a gospel train or not, but I did. I grew up in a home church at Bowman Baptist Church. Where God was saving sinners... I mean, I don't think I would be here today had it, not for, had it not been for that. My mother-in-law, right? You were saved at Bowman Baptist Church. During that day when God was just moving in power, and people were getting saved, and we would just sit around and talk about the grace of God at work in people's lives. We need that here. Amen. We ought to be praying for salvations in this church and in our community. And they were living in this gospel train. And Paul was talking about celebrating people getting saved. And they were out of difficult circumstances. Think about the Gentiles that were being saved, folks. Here are people who were thought to be cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. People that were called the dregs of society. They were called Gentile dogs by the Jews. But the sovereign king of the ages had a plan not just to save the Jewish people but to save Gentiles like me and you. We ought to be thankful for that. So, people were coming to faith by the droves. And I think it would be safe to say that the church in Jerusalem would have been kind of uptight about certain things. I.E. Gentiles. Right? Does the traditional... First Baptist churches get uptight about certain things. Do we? I mean, this church is unique, right? Yeah. This church is somewhat unique, right? It it is. Because sometimes in traditional southern first, we're first Baptist church, right? you kind of stuffy. You kind of just loosen up a little bit. Some of you loosened up since I've been here, but not a lot. That's just like we started clapping a while ago, and you're hilarious, I mean, Lori trembles up there just praising God. The pastor starts clapping. And you're like. <laughs> but if you were a football game, some of you ladies would squeeze that hot dog and it'd fly up in the air. And you'd throw your pop up in the air. Woo, KC! But when you come to church, you just. Shame on you. Right? Right? But look, the thing that caused the stuffiness in the first church of Jerusalem was the fact that God was saving Gentiles. I mean, that caught them off guard. Yahweh, God, belonged to them, right? They were His people. But they listened and they rejoiced and they glorified God. And no doubt, uh, they, they were praising God for the victories that were accomplished. You know that James mentions this all in Acts 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And we know what James' heart was. People were saved by grace through faith. The Gentiles, read chapter 15 when you get a chance. I may go back to one verse in a moment. But James recognized that the same grace that saved the Jewish people was the same grace God was using to save the Gentiles. Okay? That was settled in the Jerusalem Council. They knew that. James will say, basically, that what you've just seen, James will say, is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the the Old Testament. Y'all remember James saying that? He said that basically the tent of David is being re-erected. And Gentiles are being gathered in. And that's what God promised. And that's what God was doing. By the way, God's got the goods to get it done. And He does. Right? So, I think that when Luke is recording this, uh, keep in mind that Paul is praying for gospel advance. And uh, there's this abrupt transition in the text. From celebrating to dealing with this question of, you know, the gospel is advancing, but James and the elders come up with this question about, okay, Paul. Now, James never challenges what Paul is preaching. He never says, you don't preach grace by grace through faith, in Christ alone, by grace alone. He is challenging and wondering about what people are saying about Paul on the streets. What's the word out there? It's kind of like, whoo, we're glorifying, praising God, yeah. Well, you see, brother, right? It's an abrupt transition in the Greek. We have these thousands among the Jews who have believed and they are zealous for the law. Praise God that they believed in Jesus. And they were saved. They heard that you have been telling Jews or Jewish people uh, that believe that come to Christ not to circumcise their kids anymore. That's kind of the deal going on. And this is causing some, might we call it, some strong ecclesiastical friction. Right? That's kind of what's going on. It's causing this, and people don't like what they're hearing. And in their opinion, you're teaching our brothers and sisters to reject our customs. You're telling them to abandon Moses. We know that this cannot be true, right? We know it's not true. If you just go through what Paul teaches, he never at one point at all takes an, ind- an indifferent thing and tells the Jews to abstain from it. As a matter of fact, if you read Romans 14 and 15, you'll find out that Paul says you need to be considerate to one another regarding days and customs and what you eat and what you don't eat. So Paul never expressly says this, but this was the word on the street. In other words, this was the hot topic in SBC Life. There are other hot topics in SBC Life, but we won't talk about them. But Don and I have been thrown right in the middle of one coming up at the convention next weekend. So you need to pray for your pastor that I'll be real kind and nice. All right? But here's the deal. Uh, There's this hot topic. And notice the topic is not justification. Folks, if you don't get justification right, you're lost. Period. You're saved and pardoned by Christ alone. Period. You cannot be justified before God apart from Jesus Christ. Period. Okay? This is not about regeneration. Regeneration is to be made alive. You can't be saved without being born again. And that's the word regenerate. And that's not your work. It's God's work. You have no say-so or no power to regenerate yourself. Jesus does this. This is not about speaking in tongues over at the whatever church is down the road. That's not what this is about. This is about Gentiles, and the tension was thick. You can almost feel it as you read. There's this kind of quasi, "Woo, yeah, people are getting saved. Now, what about your teaching? What about the Gentiles? So, this phrase, zealous, goes all the way back to the Maccabean period. During the intertestamental time, when you use that word, zealous. So, during that time, many of the Jews withstood the pressure to become Hellenized, right? They didn't didn't want any Greek influence upon them whatsoever. And they withstood that pressure and incorporated together. Uh, They didn't want to incorporate into Greek culture. And so they became zealots for the law. It would be these very ones that would actually start the Maccabean revolt that would take place during the intertestamental time. Y'all know what that is? Intertestamental time. Raise your hand if you know what that is. That's the time in between the writing of the Old and the New Testament. It's a 400-year period. And during that 400-year period, that's when the Maccabean Revolt took place. So, here are these Jews. And they've believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But they're not about to put bacon to their lips. Y'all getting this? They're, they're not going to sit down at the table and eat the ham. They're not going to say, come here, pig. Come here, bacon. Right? They're not going to do that. And here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with customs, nor under any circumstances are they prepared to violate the law of Moses or the customs they have received from their fathers. So, you know full well as you read this, these people are walking a tight line, aren't they? They are. And what they had heard from Paul that he was teaching and preaching was basically to apostatize from Moses. What is the primary complaint? Circumcision. Do you see it in the text? Paul is telling our kids, our parents, not to circumcise their kids. Now, this is just a little... uh, Since I'm in the neighborhood, can I drop by? This is a little bit uh, along the lines of what some heretics teach today regarding baptism. If baptism had completely replaced circumcision as the covenantal sign and seal like Pateo-Baptists say then this would have been a non-issue, right? Don't you think in the Jerusalem Council, they'd have told you that you got to be baptized to be saved? Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all listening? Is that given in the Jerusalem Council? Absolutely not. Circumcision never saved you in the Old Testament, and it never saved you in the New. Baptism can't save you in the Old or the New. Only Jesus Christ can save your soul. So, Don't you think something would have been said about that in the most important meeting in the history of the church called the Jerusalem Council? But not one word is said about baptism. What it says is you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And James says, I have another judgment. You tell those Gentiles that have come to faith in Christ to not eat and drink, or eat the the food, drink the blood, and abstain from sexual immorality. Nothing is said about baptism. Why? Because... Jesus Christ saves, not water. Oh, I was in the neighborhood. I couldn't resist. Right? We've got to say something about that. So what would what we say about circumcision? Did Paul say some things that would make you a little bit sh- uh, make you think, Well, Paul's just throwing Moses under the bus. Well, he does tell us that in Romans 2:28 through29, He said, a true Jew is one who is circumcised of the heart, not the flesh. I mean, that's pretty important, isn't it? He did say that circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything, but what matters is the commandment of God. What he did say was that circumcision and uncircumcision profits nothing, but what what matters is faith working through love. He did say that circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter, But what matters is that you become a new creation. He did say that word for word. He did say things like, we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and in truth. He does tell the Corinthians that if you are not circumcised, remain that way. And if you are not, remain that way. Be content in the state that you are in. But the big rumor was that Paul was undermining what they held so dear. He's undermining our traditions and our customs. Has that ever happened at First Baptist? Right? I think it probably has. Here is what James and the elders recommend. They don't tell Paul to tell his peers and detractors to take a long walk on the hi- on, to take a long hike on the plank and jump off. He stresses unity among the church. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? He doesn't tell Paul just to throw his detractors to the side and to press on. James is trying to maintain good relations between the church in Jerusalem and the Gentile brethren who are coming to faith in Christ. He doesn't tell Paul to stand up and demand his rights. He doesn't do that. He asks Paul to participate in a vow. Now, scholars argue about what this vow is. It could have been that Paul was in Gentile country and he comes back And he's got to go in the temple to be purified. Why? Because you've been around Gentile dogs. That very well could have been what was going on. More than likely, though, it was more of a Nazarite vow where there was a one, three, seven day span where you would go to a priest and there would have to be a sacrifice made and money would be paid. And James says, not only do I want you to go with these four men, but I actually want you to foot the bill. Man, but preacher, that inconveniences me. I I don't really want to do that against my nature well it flies against our nature doesn't it Uh, which of us would like to hear this now remember who we're dealing with we're dealing with the apostle Paul this dude was the apostle of hard headed determination I mean this is not your run of the mill kind of dude here this was the strongest theological man who ever lived and yet he uh, he was Paul who would never compromise And Paul, James, and the elders say you need to take part in this purification vow. Uh, The fact of the matter is, uh, the amazing thing is when uh, you get down toward the end, uh, James, of course, exempts the Gentiles. Why? Because of what is said in the Jerusalem council. He dealt with that in Acts 15. Uh, What James is solely thinking about are the believing Jews. That's the view here. And here's the most amazing thing at all in verse uh, in all of this. Verse 26. What does it tell us? What does it say? Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would have been fulfilled. And the offering he took with him and presented it for each of them. Does this seem out of character regarding Paul? I don't think completely. In Acts 16, what does he do when he takes Timothy on his first missionary journey? He says, hey, Timothy, I want you to go with me. But before we go, you've got to go see the priest. And if you read your Bible, that's not a good thing. Because it's time for Timothy to be circumcised. How would you like to do that as an 18, 19, 20-year-old man? I guarantee you that Timothy said, I didn't read this in the missionary journal. And I'm not signing up for this kind of thing. But this is what Paul asked him to do. Why? Why? Because going on this particular missionary journey, he didn't want a half-Jew, half-Greek hindering the gospel. So he asked him to concede and be circumcised. When it came down, however, to faith plus circumcision, or Christ plus circumcision, Paul was a rock. His math was Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not Jesus plus baptism, not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus church membership. Jesus only saves. And when you challenged Paul on that, he was like a lion. You couldn't be saved any other way other than through Christ. So in Acts 18.18, 18, Paul is on, he's on, he's in a hurry to get up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Penta, Pentecost, right? So folks, Paul was not anti-Moses. He wasn't anti-anything to do with customs in Jewish nature at all. He wanted to get back there to even honor Pentecost. He was in a hurry. What well, we see Paul doing... Uh, is actually in fulfillment of one of the verses of Scripture that he gives us, which bears the title of the sermon, All Things to All Men. Do you want to see what Paul is doing? Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're asleep, wake up and turn your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, here's what Paul is doing. Let's begin reading in verse 19. Please look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I have become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I have become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become or became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I by all means I might save some. Is that not what Paul is doing in this text? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I would suggest to you that Paul was probably not thrilled that he was asked to do this. Here's a man who's saved by grace through faith who's free who's not bound by any customs, any law whatsoever, but yet he's asked by James and the elders to concede and do this. And I would, I've got news for you. I don't think he wanted to make this concession. I don't think Paul was sitting there saying, Well, James, that sounds like a good idea. I actually had this idea myself. No, I don't think that's the case at all. But he submitted. He did. He submitted. He did this for the sake of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it spread. Do you see this, folks? These people that Paul capitulates to, are not in the right. They're not. Keeping all the customs of Moses and observing the Mosaic Law were all shadows and all types and had nothing to do with the substance at all. Jesus Christ is the substance. According to Hebrews, all those things that were given by God in the Old Testament were shadows and substances. Things that didn't... uh, bring about salvation but Christ is the substance so Paul would make a big deal about this in, the, in his teaching will he not and here Paul makes a concession for the unity of the church and he does so for those who have a deficient understanding of the gospel does everybody think that your understanding of the gospel although you are saved is just as at the level of someone else's well I got news for you it's not But the church ought to strive to have an efficient understanding of the gospel that you have. Not a deficient understanding. And I'm telling you that 90% of church members that sit in a congregation every Sunday morning have a deficient understanding of what grace is. They have no idea what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Nor what it costs for you to be saved. I'm just telling you the honest truth. And here is Paul who has the greatest understanding of any man who ever lived on the face of the earth of what it means to be saved by grace. He said, I was the chief of sinners. God literally knocked him off his horse in order to save him. Right? He was a guy killing Christians. And God picks him up, rattles his cage, picks him up, saves him, dusts him off, and sends him to the ends of the earth to win people to Christ. So... It's highly possible in this church that you're going to encounter people that don't understand the gospel like you do, although they're saved. How how are you supposed to treat them? Well, you ought to treat them with grace and mercy because everybody's not at the level you're at. But don't allow yourself to sit back and say, well, I'm just good. Sometimes it's better not to know stuff. There's a good Hebrew word for that, and that's called baloney, right? You need to seek to know God and the salvation that you have, right? So, Paul complies with the elders, with James, keeps unity in the church. Uh, Their understanding of the gospel is not as good as his. But does this have any relevance to us? You better believe it. This is true culturally and socially and also in the church. We want to uh, have our own rights. And it would have been very easy for Paul to say, Forget all of you. You don't know anything. I'm just going to move on, but that's not what he does. He doesn't do that at all. All right, three quick things and we're done. Number one, we need to celebrate when God is at work. Right? Our church ought to celebrate the victories when people are saved. That's what you see in Acts chapter, uh, this chapter, verse 19. Paul didn't brag about what he did. He actually talked about the glory of God. That God saved these people. He related details of the journeys Uh, it's a good practice to recount the evidences that God is at work in our community and in our church. Amen? We should do this. The psalmist said, My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all His benefits. Folks, we don't need to take it for granted when God's at work in our church. We need to celebrate when God is working. At times, it's difficult for Christians to rejoice when God may be working down the road over there at Selmore. Or He may be at work over at uh, Life Point he may be at work at crossway and it's very easy for Christians to sit around and say well I don't know what's going on up there kind of fishy You know, look we're all on the same team provided they're preaching the Bible right and and the way of salvation is only through Jesus Christ we're on the same team so we never need to be in competition with other like minded Christians we're on the same team so celebrate when God is at work number two seek unity above your own individual rights Seek unity with other people that you don't agree with, even when their understanding is not as good as yours. Put this principle uh, of unity above convenience. I mean, folks, Paul could have said, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do this. He could have played the theological card that you guys are off your rocker. Paul yielded himself, submitted to James and the elders. All those things he did, why? That he might win some. It was all about the gospel. He kept peace. He didn't hinder the gospel. What is it that we insist or refuse on doing at the expense of the rest of our church body? How many times have you been asked to do something? You're like, no, I'm not going to do it. That's going to inconvenience me if I have to come to the church at Saturday and pick up a piece of material and move it around for VBS. Well, get over it. Come on down here and help. Right? Yeah, it's going to inconvenience you. Most things done for Christ are very uncomfortable. But you need to start being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right? Right? That's the truth of the matter. So we should, how each of us think about this. How much do we actually do for Christ and the church? In comparison to what we spend the rest of our time doing. But yet we say that we're following Christ. That we've taken our hand off the plow and turned and followed Him. And yet, it's like pulling teeth to get people to, be, to serve at times. I think it's all about our own rights, isn't it? I just don't want to be inconvenienced. Or maybe it's the fact that you don't think that you can help. But I want to remind you, if you're saved, you've been given a gift by God sovereignly to use in this church. That's what Ephesians 4 says. You're needed here to serve God. Number three, commit to a gospel-centered plan. Hey, what was the great news about this text? Jesus was saving sinners, right? Our church needs to commit to a gospel-centered plan. Paul agreed to do this all because of the gospel. He's doing it so that the gospel will not be hindered. He's willing to do these things. So, James' concern was on Jewish cultural practices, not the gospel. Okay? Keep that in mind. So, though Paul proclaimed that Christ was the end of the law, he did not insist that Jewish believers give Jewish customs up although it would have been fine if they did because the Gentiles didn't do any of the Jewish customs, right? So so sometimes when people are doing customs, that's not a bad thing. You Baptists have some traditions that you hold dear. And dare we not touch one of those traditions or we're in trouble. But it's not essential for you to be saved. Those customs are not. But Jesus Christ is. So I want to remind you that Paul uh, wasn't compromising here. Paul's actions are in keeping with a missionary policy. And that policy is all things, to all men, that some may be saved. He submitted to James' proposal, and he did such such in a unifying way. He lived out those words of 1 Corinthians 9 that I just read to you. He was committed to a gospel plan. You know, I think our church ought to join Paul this morning with a passion for God's glory, a desire for church unity, and a commitment to share the gospel. That sounds real simple, doesn't it? For our church, we ought to commit that everything we do at this church is for the glory of our God. We ought to commit that unity in this church is vitally important. Now, I'm not talking about uniting over error. I'm talking about things of indifference. I'm talking about things that are really not important in light of the kingdom. You ought to put those things aside. You ought to concede some things. You ought to not look at your own interests, but think about the interests of others. And by all means, we need to evangelize all people for the gospel. We should never compromise the gospel. You should never participate in a sin when you're attempting to reach people for Christ. But, we don't need to convey the impression that everyone must first be like us before they can listen to us tell them about Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. When we find our identity in Jesus Christ, then we will be able to minister humbly and lovingly with Pauline flexibility. We need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Word. Lord, I thank you for hearers of the Word. And Lord, I pray we'd be doers. God, help us to have sensitive hearts. We have hurting people, even in our church. And some may not know what others know. And that's okay. Lord, it's our call. It's your call upon our lives to love people. Uh, On indifferent things, we need to be flexible. On the truth of the Word of God, when it's clear, we should be immovable, especially when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how someone is saved. Lord, if there's someone here that's lost, may they turn to you today and be saved. And Lord, for Christians, God, help our church to be a church that shows Pauline flexibility and in indifferent matters. But the biggest concern being, let's stick with the plan of taking the gospel to our community and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.